The R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. This week's Solutionist Thinker is the son of a Methodist mother and a Muslim father. A Rhodes Scholar who went to trade equity derivatives for Credit Suisse in New York and in Zurich. The world was his oyster, but all of that wasn't going to change the world. Yusuf Randera Reese is the chief executive and co-founder of the Awetu Project, an incubator whose slogan is Introduce Your Ambition to Opportunity. Social impact as an idea is difficult compared to pure for-profit capitalism. Pure for-profit capitalism, the goal is clear and simple. At the end of everything, there's a number which you measure yourself by and everyone understands it. In social impact, you define it because it's subjective. What matters to you? I'm Bruce Whitfield and you are listening to Solutionist Thinking, brought to you by RMB. What was the genesis of the Awetu project? I always wanted to do something to contribute to South Africa, really is the genesis. It became an entrepreneurial thing where I, wanted, where I really cared about equality. I cared about the country being the way that I thought it was when I was 11 years old in 1994 and Madiba was telling me about the Rainbow Nation and I thought this is this amazing place that I want to be in and then realized it wasn't. He had given us this vision to work towards probably for the rest of at least my life, you know, and I wanted to use entrepreneurship to bring that vision about. And so nearly 10 years ago now, I came home from working at Credit Suisse and from being at Oxford and Harvard and to start this thing to try. And I didn't really have much of a plan other than I really think we have talent in this country. We're not using our talent. Let's find new ways for identifying and investing in our talent and particularly in entrepreneurship. And it's evolved from there. When you accepted the Rhodes Scholarship, was it with the view to return to change the world or did that evolve as you were studying it? You know, it's interesting actually from a solutionist perspective. The Rhodes I got the second time, but I actually got into Harvard after being rejected from Oxford. I got the Rhodes the second time after being rejected the first time. And this process of the last nine years of achievement of what we've achieved in our way to, it's always on the back of failure and, and learning. You know, you don't solve unless you try and fail. I applied from Harvard the first time. The committee was worried that I was one of these sort of serial scholarship people who was never going to come home, but was using the South African platforms to just pursue my like global ambitions. And so the second time I quit my job at Credit Suisse, I moved home and I was here for four months before the interviews. And I said to them, listen, if you don't believe that I'm going to be here, if I don't get this, I'm here. So there's my commitment. I've quit my job. I'm here. I hope it was more than that, but I think that was a key element. And in fact, the South African Roads is the only one that asks that you commit to come home afterwards. We're the only one in the world that says that. Edwin Cameron, I think, is quite important in that because he heads up the Rhodes Scholarships in South Africa. That's a condition. We were all required to commit that we were coming home and to use what we got there for good. What did you use the Rhodes Scholarship for? You got to Oxford. You could study absolutely anything. I always wanted to do business in Africa. And w- what played out in my degree was that there's this big divide between business. Business is growth, right? Like what is growth? It's business. But then the the people who are trying to do good almost feel at odds with the business community because they don't understand it. They often feel like the decisions business makes are not in the interest of good. They're rather in, in search of profit and they, they feel at odds. So I wanted to understand both sides. So I did financial economics and masters and I was in the business school there and I was with 
80 people from around the world who whenever I talked about qualitative issues or social impact issues, their eyes would glaze over. And then I went and did a master's in African studies with a whole bunch of people who are really smart from around the world. And whenever I talked about business issues, <laughs> their eyes would glaze over. And it was a perfect example of like how even in that space, they were about 500 meters apart, the two schools. And these people were all really smart, but they didn't understand each other at all. I mean, I was probably average at both sets of studies, but I thought the ability to bridge was really important and actually like a unique pursuit. Yeah, I went and I learned those things. And interestingly, at Oxford is a big part of where I, I further refined the idea for Oweto and pitched the idea for Oweto. In the 21st Century Challenge was the biggest business plan competition in the UK. And I'm going back to Oxford nine years later to give a keynote address about careers and social impact at the same school, at the same place where I pitched Oweto the first time to talk about what it means to do a career in social impact. The idea of social impact, has it moved on the concept? Because 10 years ago, the concept of social impact was a little bit woolly. Bill Gates was talking about conscious capitalism. Are you being taken more seriously now as a social impact entrepreneur? The idea has evolved a lot because it's become part of common language and thinking, but it's got a very long way to go. If you want to know where it is in the popular consciousness, I feel like when you see massive mining companies in South Africa pitching themselves as social impact businesses in their marketing campaigns, you know there's a trend here, right? What we do is to create jobs and what we do is to give opportunity, not what we do is to extract resources, but what we do is those things. You know people are thinking about this. But it remains a super gray area, which is very undefined, and basically people define it as they will. But that's the trouble with it as well, is it almost gives social impact a bad name in the same way as innovation, the buzzword of the last five or six years, is the most abused word in business language nowadays. We, we're innovating. No, you're not. You're just evolving. You're changing. You're not innovating. <laughs> you're not creating anything new. Social impact is bigger than just creating jobs. One of the things that the, that whole area is grappling with and why it's social impact as an idea is difficult compared to pure for-profit capitalism is because pure for-profit capitalism is clear and simple. The goal is clear and simple. Make money. There's a number at the end of everything. There's a number which you measure yourself by and everyone understands it. And in business, understand like focus and clarity is the essence in a lot of ways, right? Uh, for getting big organizations to move and to know what you're doing. In social impact, you define it because it's subjective. What, what matters to you? You might care about equality. What does equality even mean? No one can really define that thing. But when you try to get specific and try to say this company is about this specifically, it's very hard. And so that's what social impact has to grapple with is like dealing in this gray area, which is much harder to define than for-profit capitalism. But it's so necessary because otherwise you get suboptimal outcomes for the world. Why did you place yourself there? Why did you choose this great, big, complex, gray area? I'm excited by scale. Um, my, my parents are both doctors, and my sister's a doctor. And so I was brought up in a household where people were very committed to doing good for other people. Every hour you help one person, then one person, then one person, and your life ends up being helping all these people, which is really meaningful. But the system, if the system's broken, then have you done the, the most that you possibly can for the people that you're trying to help? And so I was always excited about systemic change. And I was an entrepreneur. You know, I think I did my first money-making venture. I'm not sure you could call it a business, but it was my first money-making venture when I was about nine. I was excited by the idea of business. I was excited by the idea of making money and the opportunity that presented to change things and to drive your own agenda. I always thought government and nonprofits, they always had to ask other people for money and then they were dictated to a little bit. But if you had your own business and you're making money, you could do what you wanted to do. 
the idea of impact at scale and the idea of being with entrepreneurs. And then this third idea of wasted potential and feeling like the, the basic insight that economy is about people. Economies are about people. And if we're wasting talent, that's crazy. Just go and help the people who have the talent to express it. And then you can help the whole economy because fundamentally that's what the most important unit is. So those three things, I think, came together to say, okay, well, let's start in entrepreneurship. Let's start in these communities where talent is the most overlooked and see what we can do. You were 26. You had 60,000 60, rand. 60, rand in startup capital. You had an idea and an ambition and an ocean of opportunity. How did you, on that first day, direct your energy? So I tried to raise money to start. And everyone patted me on the back and said, wonderful idea, young man, uh, we'll call you. And then no one called. So we just decided, let's start. And we went into Alex. It was me, um, another guy who came back from, we both went to Crawford together. And he came back from Harvard to start with me. And we had a few volunteer Americans who wanted to do good in the world and something fun to do at their time. We went into Alex and we put a box in the community center there with a sign above it, which basically said, if you know how to make money, if you think you're a leader, if you think you're a problem solver, if you think you're creative, come and show what you can do. We don't care about what the banks ask for. We don't care about what government asks for. If you think you're an entrepreneur, we use this term world-class talent. I don't think we knew what that was. Maybe we still don't. But it was this term that expressed the ambition of the thing. We said, we have access to world-class resources and we'll get you access to those resources. How quickly did the box fill up? We were very um, unprofessional and we presented ourselves pretty poorly, I think. And in a, in a week, 2,000 people applied despite that. And we set up our own series of tests. We made cognitive tests and uh, sales tests and uh, reliability tests and work ethic tests over the course of the next month. And we what was that based on? Were you guessing or did you have some science behind it? There's some science. There's, there's a fair amount of research on what mm. makes a good entrepreneur. Even in informal economies, there's a decent amount of research. But we started blank page. We said, okay, what do we think would matter on a day-to-day basis for making a successful entrepreneur? And we weren't successful entrepreneurs, so we didn't have that much insight. But... I think, you know, generally we thought you need to be a decent problem solver. You need to be hardworking. You need to be able to sell things. You need to have a vision for yourself and a you know, passion for what you do, these kinds of things. So let's test for those. And we set up tests. It was 26-year-olds coming up with a blank slate solution, you know. Out of those 2,000, how many cracked the nod in that first round? Three cracked the nod. That would have broken most people's spirits to say, hold on a second, we've got this big ambition. We've got 2,000 people who see themselves like this, yet we've identified only three that we believe can really crack it. But what about the 1,997 others? Yeah, that's a really good point. So we were really sensitive to that from the start. And so we partnered with Vitz and Vitz came in and did entrepreneurial workshops for everybody who applied. Anybody who wanted them could come. They were free to access. And so they ran them effectively for the 2,000 people. So nobody walked away with nothing. No one walked away with nothing. Yeah. But that is a tough thing, right? My basic premise was I can get resources for myself. If I can get them for 10 people who are as or more talented than me, we can have a much bigger impact. So let's find those people. But at the same time, then you can let a lot of people down. So we try to mitigate that. I think the way the business has evolved speaks to how do you get things to everybody. So how many lives have you touched over the last nine years? That part of the business has evolved. Discovery gave us some seed capital. We iterated, iterated, learned lots of things, tested lots of things, succeeded sometimes, failed sometimes. And then government came on with the jobs fund and they gave us 20 million rand and they said, basically you're the youngest, smallest project we're going to give money to. We're going to give you the least amount of time to prove it. So prove what you can do and then we might give you more. 
we got 500 entrepreneurs into the program, created 250 jobs, and for taxpayers, that's a cost of 80,000 rand per job. Government was okay with about 100 grand, and I think remains okay at about 100 grand, but we weren't happy. I mean, it's also, these are not high-end tech jobs. These are informal economy, quite vulnerable jobs still, right? These are people who are not going to earn that in two years, necessarily. 80 grand, no, they weren't. Mm. They weren't earn 80 grand. In fact, our benchmark was 1,500 rand. We set it at the, what the minimum wage was at the time, and it had to be sustainable. And so when we went back to government, we said, look, we've done this. Can we finish the job? We've got so many learnings, but we need more time to figure it out. They gave us another 70 million rand, and we incubated another 1,500 entrepreneurs. And I don't know, by numbers, I think that's one of the biggest incubation efforts on the continent, especially for the amount of stuff we did. It was a six-month program every week, one-on-one coaching, some funding, an employment incentive to employ other people, uh, business training. At the end of that process, we created over 2,000 jobs, and the average grad was creating one and a half jobs and three and a half thousand rand of new profit per month uh, for themselves. And the, the cost per job had gone down to around 20 grand, uh, so from 80 grand to 20 grand. So it, it was really good, and we were proud of it for helping that many people. What we set out to do was to solve for impact at scale, to get a method for helping people who had talent as entrepreneurs, the support they needed to express that talent. And still, 2,000 people wasn't touching sides, the two to five million people in this demographic. So we said, okay, how do you take this thing to scale? And that's where we created a technology platform and we launched that a year ago. Do you ever get close to a breaking point where you just thought this is so big, it's insurmountable? I definitely, even now, am at a point where I think I'm much more realistic about what we can do to affect the problem. But that's never taken me close to a breaking point. I basically came in as a young person whose premise was there's all these people and if you just get them opportunity, they will take it. And that's the simple problem, simple solution. I think that was also just naive. As many times as that played out, it also just didn't. Uh, and it was very disappointing. You know, when I came in, I think we had just lost, of the three first entrepreneurs, two quit. One went back to UCT. He got a scholarship, which is cool for him. And another one went to get a job with his uncle after feeling like entrepreneurship wasn't for him. So it was me and one entrepreneur, the guy I started with had left. He said South African microenterprise wasn't for him. And he went back to a hedge fund in New York. And um, we had run out of money. So it was tough, you know, but I never felt like I was going to quit because I just think the roots of why I wanted to solve the problem were are very deep. So to date, you've seen the creation of 2,000 enterprises. Some of those people have gone to create as many as 20 jobs each. And is it possible to say that you've touched in a positive way 10,000 lives? I mean, how do you measure impact? Well, primarily, we had to deliver jobs. And so what I'm quite proud of is that a South African taxpayer wants to know what we did with that money. We can show you every employment agreement that was signed. I mean, the jobs fund is quite pedantic around proof of job. So you have to get literally an employment agreement. If you have somebody who's selling FedCook and has employed one other person to sit next to them and sell FedCook, you got to get them to sign an employment agreement. So we can show you 2,000 employment agreements that of jobs that were really created and real money that people generated as a result. There's different labor dependency ratios that I've seen in South Africa, but it's somewhere between like four and 10 people are relying on someone with an income. And especially in these communities, it's really vulnerable people, you know? So I don't know, just from that, I think you've helped, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 people really uh, to improve their lives. I was speaking to a young economist the other day, also a, a young idealist, and they said to me, this promise of, a, of entrepreneurship in South Africa is the cruelest hoax that is being sold to millennial generation in South Africa. Why does he think that? 
it's so hard. It's so difficult. I mean, after 10 years, you've achieved so much, but it's been a slog and it's been a labor of extraordinary commitment. If we had another thousand people like you doing it all at the same time, we'd have a chance of cracking this thing. But it just feels that it may be a cruel hoax. But maybe the hoax is that it's going to be easy. Well, that life is easy. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the things that millennials get conditioned to, which is wrong. But I squeeze in as a millennial. I think it's an awesome career path, but you just need to understand how difficult it is. Essentially, what you're looking for, though, is mini solutionists. You're looking for the people who are going to have impact in their own way. You want to have impact to get them to have impact so that the people who they impact will have impact in communities. That's exactly the premise, yeah. The people who can take on one employee, two employees, their families, 10 people, and do that at scale for thousands of people. And that's how you get individuals lifting the country up rather than these sort of institutions from the top down trying to help. Actually, I've got a cool story for you. A bigger part of our business, definitely by capital now, is our fund management business, which takes equity stakes in SMEs. Um, and so one of the guys that we invested in, he was at RMB as a private banker. He had come from Kahiso, comes from a difficult background, but had made his way out through scholarships and such. And now as a private banker, but he, he was into fitness and one of his clients uh, ran a gym equipment import business and they wanted to start something together. So we mentored him and funded him to come out and start this thing. Four years later, he's running seven gyms. He's He's got 100 employees and he just won the the tender for the new discovery building so he's got the gym in the discovery building as like best practice in in corporate gyms in south africa yeah he's i mean he's built a business which is worth tens of millions of rand like it's an awesome awesome story which wouldn't have happened unless there was this risk capital available and also another part of the business of course which is to solve another south african challenge if you like and that is the requirement by the department of trade and industry that companies do procurement and they do more responsible procurement, that they do procurement from SMMEs, from the sort of guys that you've been instrumental in helping start up. Well, there's almost a life cycle thing here because now you can go to the large corporation and say, I know the guy who imports the best pencils in the world and you need a million pencils a year. Turns out the pencil game, tough one to get into. And this is interesting from a solutions perspective because I feel like one of the things in social impact, which when you start maybe as a millennial, you think you can just go with your first idea and it's very simple and just because you're idealistic, this is how things will go. But we've had to pivot a lot along the way. And one of the pivots that happened was we went to SAB to try and raise money for our incubator and for our SME equity fund, which were not really related to transformation. They were just uh, social impact businesses. And the BE codes were changing. And SAB said, those things are wonderful. But our problem is our supply chain. Like, we've got to transform it. It needs to look like the country. We don't have a solution. How would you use what you do for that? And I'd been interested in BE since the early days. I interned at Invela Resources. I'd thought about it a lot. And so what we said was, look, we just feel like the whole premise of the way we're doing transformation is understood by a few who benefit from it. And I know that's a common narrative. But I almost feel like it's a, so some of these premises are false. So one of the things was you're going to get small black-owned businesses into the supply chains of big corporates and in that way will transform the economy. But what ends up happening is people end up doing the very peripheral things like pencils and catering and landscaping and not being in the core of the supply chain. And the core of the supply chain is mostly white-owned with excellent businesses, great relationships, lots of reasons to stay there in terms of track record, assets, etc. The theory shouldn't be get rid of those guys. The theory is in this country is built on a premise we're doing this thing together. So if we're going to transform this supply chain, we've got to work with those guys as well. 
And let's use that for real transformation. Let's bring new black entrants into those businesses to learn from the incredibly experienced people there and create value for everybody in a real sort of shared value model, which also makes money. We said, okay, so SAB, if you all you want to do is give cheap loans to small catering companies, we're not interested. But if you want to do something real, then let's do equity investments into black and white suppliers. If it's a black-owned business, let's make it massive. If it's a white-owned business, let's make it transform and make it massive. And let's make money for everybody involved while not disrupting core operations. And they like that. And so we started with a million rand consulting project, and it's now a 300 million rand fund with them. And it's flying. It's up over 100% since we started. There's some awesome transformation stories. There's some awesome growth stories. For me, this idea of the Rainbow Nation idea is something I was sold on. And I believe in it. I think it's a better solution for the country than going into single groups of people and saying, this is all we're doing. I want us to work together. And it's a sort of a model aimed at that. Social impact, capitalism, making money out of doing good. That's okay. It has to be. I just feel like trying to separate business from doing good is not understanding how things work. (laughs) Where do you think money comes from if if not from business? So mm. are we just going to tax? We say this is a necessary evil. The act of producing goods and services that people want is a necessary evil. That's crazy. That's a natural human function that we would have done if we were cavemen. That's what business is. It's the evolution of that instinct is to provide for yourself by producing things that other people want. And it's evolved into these really sophisticated institutions. Of course, they sometimes have done bad. But for the most part, we all use business and it's great. It's what, it's what humans do. It's part of being human. So let's integrate that into what society also needs, where in this country, you know, quite obvious things, which I think we all agree on. If you can make money, if you can do something which is in the DNA of these institutions, which are the drivers of growth, that's way more powerful. And you're in way more control from a social impact perspective than if you are on the periphery of those organizations asking them for their money with no impact. In SAB, I'll tell you how that manifests. They own half the fund. We own half the fund, they own half. The, every deal is structured that new black entrants will create a third of the value. SAB creates a third and we create a third once SAB gets its money back. And that incentive, I think, has driven them to buy more from the businesses they're in. The head of M&A and the head of procurement are on the investment committee. That would never have happened if this was a, a grant-making thing on the periphery. And that organization is super bought into transformation now. Like It's, it's a core part of all their priorities, transformation. And a big part of this because... It's real. It's, it's in their core business. It's not on the side. Have you achieved everything you sought to achieve as a much younger guy nine years ago? No, not at all. But I think probably I was not realistic about what could be achieved. Now with the dose of realism, what do the next 10 years look like? Well, they're very un- unrealistic, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably more, un- in- more informed, unrealistic expectations. Um, but would you do it if you didn't have those unrealistic expectations? I mean, you've got to have big audacious goals surely in order to keep chipping away at an enormous problem and that is the problem of inequality i think it depends how you made up right i think a lot of people yeah i think you could you could do this for sure because you could make a difference to i guess one of the things that i've learned over the last nine years is not to treat impact in the same way that you sort of look down on capitalism for treating money where there's just never enough and i think our team me and my partner Rob have been a little bit guilty of that. You get so obsessed with sort of the systemic impact and the numbers and how many people are you helping that you're not thinking about the single intervention, the single person's life, the single. Like, if that doesn't matter to you, then who cares about the thousands, right? That's it's just a replication of the single unit. I, I do think there's a lot of meaning in that, and that sort of first and foremost is building something which really works and which has that impact 
that's front of mind. But then getting that impact to scale, I think that's an awesome thing to try to use your time for. If we did simpler things at scale, would we have bigger solutions? I think the solutions could be simpler to our social problems, but I think we typically are dealing with symptoms and not causes. I think that we underestimate the root psychological, the fact that our history is what it is, the fact that our current problems are as big as they are. Those are real things that need to be addressed at root. You can't address them at the end point. So I think that's complex. But once you have addressed that, I think the solutions are relatively simple. Getting the economy to grow at 5% a year, I think, is just getting out the way. I think uh, I think if you just let business do what business does and, and really en- enable business, we could do that quite easily. But business must be obliged, forced even, into this idea of shared value. I think if you're not... I don't know. It just seems like you're on the wrong side of history at this point, right? Like, you just, it's just rational. Why wouldn't you want to solve some of these problems while also doing well for yourself? That's what shared value is. It's like my teammate had a funny thing the other day. He said, social enterprise is just making so much money that you're willing to give some away, which I think is a bit of a cynical way to think of social enterprise. But I do think if, you, if shared value is, is all the goal is, where you're saying we're going to make great value for ourselves and create value for society, why wouldn't you want that? And I think forward-thinking business people have come around to that. If your only goal is self-interest, I don't know. Would you teach your kids that? Have you ever wanted to go back to that derivative desk in New York and go, oh, those were the good old days? I still made more money there when I was 22 than I, <laughs> than I make now. So when I'm thinking about um, my kid on the way, that's definitely something that is a concern. But no, not really. When you introduced me, there was this moment when I, I didn't just work on Wall Street. We lived on Wall Street, 45 Wall Street. I walked past the stock exchange the one day and I looked up at it and I was wearing my French collar shirt and thinking I was a real banker. And I just thought, Jesus, if you die doing this, I'll be disappointed in you. I've, I've never once in my whole time doing a where to doubted that it was the right thing for me to be doing with my life. So no, I've, I've never wanted to go back. Yusuf Randera Reese. R&B, solutionist thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.